Let's begin with a word of prayer, church. Father in heaven, our salvation comes through the death of Jesus Christ. And just as we have sang, Father, we pray that you would continually show us more of you and your Son. Without him, O oh God, we have no firm foundation for this life. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only reason that we are free and have the privilege of standing one day before your throne in purity and in holiness, not because of the good we've done, but what Christ has done. Father, I pray that as we continue to worship now around the Word, and as we think specifically about worship and the songs that Christians have written and how we give you glory through using our mouths and music, I pray, Father, that you would illuminate to our hearts your Word, and we as your people, God, might be moved by hearing our shepherd's voice to joyfully obey and submit to you. I ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are going to be continuing on in our summer series on Christian worship. I know in the last few weeks we have talked a lot about what worship is and how music is a gift from God. And today what I'd like to do for us is I'd like us to look at some of the commands that are given in the scriptures for Christians to sing and also to look through Christian history to see how Christians just like you and me who lived in other eras and times took these commands and applied them to their lives and to their churches. You know, many of us who come from a Baptist camp don't think that we have a set order of service or a liturgy. We look at Anglicans, Presbyterians, and others and say, well, your services are very formal. You have pre-written prayers. You have named deacons who come up to read the scriptures. You have hymns sung from a hymnal, you have recitations of creeds, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know, you have the celebration of the Lord's table, in some cases, every single week. Others, including places where people are marked to stand there. Now, if you're a Baptist, and you've grown up in this Baptist tradition, you might not think, actually, that you are part of a system or a liturgy of worship. You say, no, we're free. But the truth of the matter is that Baptist liturgy, though not spoken, is implicitly understood, and everybody knows it when they see it. I love while one humorous writer described the evangelical or the Baptist tradition in this way. Here's the liturgy. Fellowshippers shall enter the sanctuary garrulously, centering their attention on each other and happily exchanging their news of the past week. Then, shall, if there is an overhead projector, the acolytes shall light it. The minister shall then begin morning fellowship by chanting the morning greeting, good morning. Then shall not more than 50% and not less than 10% of the fellowshippers respond, chanting in this wise, good morning. This is then followed by the glad handing of the peace, in which the minister may say, why don't we all shake hands with the person on our left and on our right and say good morning. This is then followed by the reading. Then shall be read an arbitrary scripture passage of the minister's choosing, as long as it does not relate to the time of the church's year. You read things like this, and it's kind of funny because you know it's true, especially if you've been around different churches. My point is that even those of us who don't think that we have traditions actually are very well steeped 
in church tradition. And the question that the church of Jesus Christ must always ask time and time again is that what we do in church, as we take a good hard look at it, is what we do traditional and invention of people Or has it begun to stray away from a biblical pattern? Or is it perhaps ungodly? Traditional or biblical? What has God actually asked us to do, commanded us to do when we worship Him? Have you ever thought about why we sing in church? You know, you have people who visit church for the first time and they say, oh, all your friends are really good singers. And sometimes they think, that the reason that Christians gather together is because they're a musical lot, you know, like a bowling club gathers together because they all like bowling. So a church is full of people who like to sing. Now, it is true that a church is full of people who like to sing, but that is not the primary reason that the people of the church gather. We don't sing because it's nice or just because it's a hobby of ours. We sing because that is what God demands of His people. He commands them to be a singing church. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Do you know what the main command is in this text? It's found at the end of verse 18, and it's be filled with the Spirit. That's the imperative here. And by this, I think the apostle means, believe the promises of God, have joy in your soul as you think about them, find your ultimate joy in God. Whatever your circumstances may be, be filled with the Spirit of God. You know, this is what happened, I think, to Paul and Barnabas when they were persecuted in Iconium in Acts chapter 13, and because of the persecution, they're violently thrown out of the city. And the text says in verse 52 that the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, these two things often in the scriptures go hand in hand together, Holy Spirit and joy. And so what you read here in Ephesians chapter 5 about addressing one another, singing to one another, making melody, all these little ing verbs or participles that come after are consequences of what it means to be full of the spirit in other words being full of the spirit leads to singing speaking to one another letting the word of christ come out of your heart and go and minister to a brother or sister in christ you know just as a pot that is full of boiling water you can't contain it and tell it not to shoot steam, you know, out of the out of the little sides of the cover there. It's the same thing, I think, with a Christian. A Christian that is full of the Holy Spirit naturally bubbles over in the Spirit with joy and in verbal praise to God for what God has done in their life. It's not containable. And this kind of worship comes from deep inside the pot. It's not lip praise, but it's singing from your belly, the proper way to sing right? Through the Holy Spirit in your heart that comes out of your mouth so that the world can see. So why do we sing? If you're outlining, number one, God commands his church to sing. That's why we sing. Now, if you live in North America, 
it is quite possible that in your visitation of other churches, you have come across your share, perhaps, of dull Sunday morning worship services. These are the services in which people barely sing. The worship leader looks down. The people kind of mumble at each other with kind of glazed over eyes. And it really, you know, it's, 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 it's such an odd sight to see, and it's kind of a downer. The question I've often asked, you know, is why is that? Now, there are multiple reasons why I think people don't sing. Sometimes the songs are too difficult. Sometimes the songs are not very biblical. Sometimes they're just the melody lines are, are made for uh, concerts and professional singers. But I think that in many churches, the reason why people don't sing is because they show up to church spiritually drunk. What I mean by that is not drunk on wine, but I mean intoxicated with worldly concerns and cares. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. As we've read this section and read this passage in Ephesians, I think Paul here is literally talking about wine. So he's saying, don't get drunk with alcohol because it will cloud your senses and you won't able to be full of the Spirit, joyful or thoughtfully and prayerfully in worship to God. But in the New Testament, you find that Sin is also described with the same kind of alcoholic, intoxicating language. If you look at Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 2, you read this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. So here you get a biblical comparison of sexual sin to drunkenness. So the point is, when you're living in sin, your spiritual spider senses are dulled, and they're clouded, and your mind is not fixed on the things of God, and your judgment is compromised, and you walk into danger. You might as well be an alcoholic. Sin has that effect. You know, there are so many Christians here, especially in Baptist circles, who have never ordered a drink at a bar, yet I think they are spiritual alcoholics in church every Sunday. They spend six days a week mixing for themselves margaritas of materialism, liquors of lust, champagnes of coveting, vodkas of entertainment or the praise and affections of other people. You pick whatever you want to drink. It's out there. We're spiritually dehydrated because we're functional spiritual alcoholics turning to anything other than God to satisfy our thirst and not drinking from the pure and living water of the Word of God. This is why I think that North Americans have suffered from this Christian uh, Saturday night camp experience high. If you know what I'm talking about, if you've been to Christian camp before, it's like this. Everybody shows up to camp on Friday. You mumble some songs and you listen to a speaker and then everyone staggers into bed talking and then they go to sleep. In the morning, people feel a bit better. The worship leader has a better time getting people to sing. Things are a bit louder. They hear the sermon. They're kind of moved by it. And then they go off and spend some time in recreation in the afternoon and playing football or other things, enjoying some time out in the park. And then after dinner time, the bell is rung. Everyone goes back into the sanctuary for the Saturday night service. And this time it's different. 
A conference speaker at this point is usually given his, given his third message. He's tired and at the end of his rope, but the people of God, funnily enough, are not. At this time, he gets up and preaches, but the effect is usually electrifying on Saturday night. People seem to be cut to the heart, and they start yelling, like, what shall I do to be saved? They start crying. There's tears. Nobody wants to stop the worship service. They keep asking the band to play some more. They repent of their sins. And I've, I've often seen this, especially when I worked with youth conferences. And I wonder, why does this happen? I think the reason that this happens in some cases is because people, after having had space over the last 24 hours to actually focus on God, are finally being filled with the Spirit of God and not with physical or spiritual alcohol. See, the reason that many are not able to sing at church on Sundays is because they're actually having a hangover. See, you could be a chronic spiritual alcoholic and what's happening on Sunday morning, while you don't feel like worshiping, is your spiritual liver is working overtime to expel the toxins of the alcohol you've been drinking all week. The whiskey of worldliness that's killing your soul. And see, only when that's purged and has time to come out of the system and you start drinking in the truth of God's word in your heart, you realize that what's replaced in your heart is affections for Christ. And you begin to sing for joy that comes out of your heart. And we don't just sing, but we praise God from inside of us. And then, as Ephesians chapter 5 say, we sing and we address one another as well in the church. As much as entertainment and singing in our world is often seen to be a private earbud affair, the church of Jesus Christ is characterized by people who don't just sing from the heart, but people who sing to one another. So if you're outlining number two, the church in this text we see is commanded to sing to one another. And it's not just here, but Colossians 3.16 also says the same thing, that the word of Christ right, dwell in you richly and you sing Address one another, one another. And when we do so, we are turning to brothers and sisters who are sitting here in the church, maybe broken, maybe have had a really difficult week. And as we sing biblical truth to them, we are taking the living water of God's word from our mouths and our hearts, and we are pouring it down their throats, and we are refreshing their souls. You know, there's so many people, I think, that are dying in this world because they are thirsty and they have no one to sing the word of God to them. Church, this is actually one of the other reasons why you need the church. Sometimes when you're dying of thirst, you need the church of Jesus Christ to surround you and to sing and pour God's truth, His living water, into your soul. And you can see this actually pattern as we look through Christian history of how the church has sung. You know, the early church back in New Testament times wasn't just born when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and commissioned his disciples to evangelize the world. The church of Jesus Christ was born actually into song as well. You remember the early disciples were meeting in the upper room, cowering behind locked doors. But when Jesus Christ showed up behind those locked doors, even doubting Thomas, seeing him, was driven down to his knees in worship, and he shouted, my Lord and my God. Basically, for him, the realization that Jesus Christ had actually risen from the grave and was not dead, but was God himself was staggering to his mind, and he couldn't help 
but worship him. You know, if you think about that as a Christian and you understand this truth, how can you not sing praise? You remember that you were once lost in utter darkness, walking in the ways of your parents or perhaps your culture and your society in darkness. But then when Jesus came, he transferred you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son and turned you into a born-again child of God with an unlimited inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. How can you not sing about that? You know, people who win the lottery, like $10 million, no one ever looks at it and goes, oh, that's kind of nice. I hope it changes my life. You don't. You people are happy and they shout, same thing. And Jesus is worth far more than $10 bucks. You know, when you read the New Testament, you get hints that the early church, very close to the start of its life, had already started writing songs about Jesus. And Paul knew them and he quoted them. For example, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it reads this. Great indeed is God, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Six lines. Now, whether you divide this up as three sets of two or two sets of three, which is what most scholars think that this thing is, it sounds like a song. So you think about it. If First Timothy was written sometime in the mid-60s, about 30 years after Jesus died, what it means is that basically there was a contemporary Christian worship song that had already traveled from Jerusalem across the Mediterranean Sea to Philippi, where Paul was writing, which is now modern-day Greece, and people knew it, and so Paul could quote it. So you see stuff like this, not just here, but also when you read other sections, like Philippians chapter 2. There's a great hymn written to Jesus who emptied himself, and then because he was obedient to the point of death, the text says that God exalted him and raised him up to the highest place so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, that reads like a Christian poem or a hymn. Colossians 1.15 as well has this beautiful section that starts with, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and the rest is chorus. You know, very quickly, what the New Testament shows us is that the early Christians were already worshiping Jesus as God and had written songs in his praise. Now, we don't know a ton about first century Christian worship from archaeology and stuff, but by the second century, we start to know a bit more. In 112 AD, Pliny, who was an ancient Roman official, in his letter to the Emperor Trajan, actually made this observation about Christians. He wrote, They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. Justin Martyr, in the second century, a Christian apologist, wrote in one of his works that Christians, unlike the pagans, didn't offer up blood sacrifices, but they offered instead prayer, thanksgiving, and hymns to God. So they were writing. By the third century, you see that the singing church actually really was swept up in, I think, the first battle of the bands, as they faced, for the first time, musical attacks on the Christian church. 
Arius was a church teacher who argued that Christ was not God and that the Trinity, the idea of it, three in one, was absolutely absurd. The story actually goes that on one Sunday, Arius and his followers crashed John Chrysostom, who was a great preacher's church, and they ran in there and they started shouting, look at these fools who believe that three make one. Now, faithful Christians during this time were appalled by this, and they fought back, actually, against Arius with biblical argumentation. And eventually, there was a council meeting held in Nicaea that excommunicated Arius as a heretic. But what made Arius so dangerous wasn't just what he taught, but actually how he spread his teaching. Philostorgius was an early Christian writer, and in his epitome, he wrote this about Arius' songs. Arius, after his secession from the church, composed several songs to be sung by sailors and by millers and by travelers along the high road, and others of the same kind, which he adapted to certain tunes, as he thought suitable in each separate case, and thus by degrees seduced the minds of the unlearned by the attractiveness of his songs to the adoption of his own impiety. Now, in English, what this means is how did Arius spread his heretical ideas? Basically, what he did was he looked at the Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, or Disney songs of his age, and he said, that sounds really good, and people know these tunes. Why don't I take these common tunes that the average Joe knows, and I will change the lyrics to them to teach them something about what I believe? You know, I was thinking about it this way, just I'm like, what would Arius have done? I was thinking, if Arius had heard Aladdin's, you know, like, a whole new world, don't you dare close your eyes, I think he would actually have changed the song to be like this. Jesus Christ, don't you dare call him God, a new fantastic Lord for you, created son, not God, in a human bod, let me share God's firstborn one with you. And, 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 and you can hear that, and you're like, that's memorable. And it appeals to you, and you can think about it. Why? Because everybody in our culture knows Disney and knows what Aladdin is, and so it sticks in your head. If you want to teach it in Sunday school, that's too complicated for little children to, to understand. So you would take a nursery rhyme instead. And this was one of the lines that Arius regularly taught, the first one. There was once when he was not, he was not, he was not, he was made and not begot, Jesus, God's creation. Like, it's catchy, it rhymes, and you know where that comes from. And my point is this, church, why will you never hear our kids in Team Kids or Bible Buddies singing songs like this, even though Arius would have taught them? And the reason is, it's heresy. It teaches untrue things about God. The tunes are nice, but the lyrics, if you believe them, will kill your soul. And music is so powerful because it can subtly, without you even knowing it, settle truths into your hearts that you functionally believe without you even knowing through its deceptive, pleasant tunes how it got there. You know, thankfully, what happened in the Christian church was that God raised up powerful hymn writers and teachers like Ambrose of Milan to write counter hymns that were full of doctrine, good doctrine, and right theology. For example, you can see that uh, one of the hymns that he wrote, Maker of All Things, ends like this. 
Christ with the Father, ever one, Spirit, the Father, and the Son. God over all the mighty sway, shield us, great Trinity, we pray. So you see that, and you realize what people like Ambrose and Milan were writing against as they thought about writing their songs. See, you fight heretical poison injected with musical needles into people's veins by filling for yourself worship syringes that are full of good, sound, biblical truth and plunging them instead into people's hearts. This is why if you're outlining number three, I think this is important. Number three, Christians must write songs based on God's word. This is the history of the Christian church. You know, the success of Ambrose's counter songs was off the charts and he effectively discipled many common and illiterate people who had never been able to read for themselves but could sing his songs and learn the proper truths about God and Jesus Christ. But, you know, despite this, the immense benefit that, you know, the hymns had brought to the Christian church and the fact that the church was born in song, eventually what happened to the church's detriment was the church moved towards professional choirs. By 367 AD, the Council of Laodicea had written, besides the appointed singers who mount the ambo or the stage and sing from the book, others shall not sing in the church. And then the songs of the average Christian were replaced with what is called the Gregorian chant of the professional clergy. And furthermore, as people stopped speaking Latin and the mass continued on in Latin, the distance between what the church was doing and its professionalization continued to increase from the common Christian and God's people eventually over time lost their voice. And this went on for a hundred, over a thousand years. Now, it wasn't lost totally. There were monasteries and little pockets where the gospel was preached, songs were written, but for the vast majority, the song of the Christian church was lost. When the Protestant Reformation began in about the 16th century, led by people like Martin Luther, the church once again found its voice. The printing press was instrumental in allowing for his ideas of justification by faith, true, or true, the true nature of salvation, a recovery of the Christian gospel, and also hymns to be spread all throughout the European continent. Now, to teach these things and to fight against the Catholic theology of the day, Luther advocated that Christian songs be a part of worship. Luther was so enthusiastic about worship that he actually said that a person who doesn't regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. Luther could be very harsh at times, you know, but his point was this. Music is a gift from God and we need to sing what it is that we believe. By the time that Luther had died, there were 60 German hymnals that had been published and over 25,000 hymns that had been composed in a short period of time. And this is really amazing. And what this shows us as we look at Christian history is that the good news that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, when that is rightly understood, God's people who see that and are converted and come to know him cannot help but write songs to praise Him and sing those songs as well. Like, how can you not sing if you have been saved? Now, despite this, of course, in the Reformation, there were others, like Ulrich Zwingli as well, as well who was too afraid of the power of music and completely banned it in his churches. 
denying it completely. John Calvin, another reformer, decided not to take that approach. On the other hand, he argued instead that only psalm singing was permitted in the church, and you couldn't have all these other hymns that were written. So together with others, Calvin went on a great project, and he began to create what is known today as the Genevan Psalter, which is 20 years' worth of compilations setting all 150 psalms to tunes for the people of God to sing. So if you did not grow up in uh, singing Scottish metrical psalms or in a Presbyterian circle, you might have no idea that this stuff exists. But for example, if you look at Psalm 23, taken from a metrical psalm book, it reads like this. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want, he makes me down to lie. In pastures green he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. Yea, though I walk in death's drake veil, yet will I fear none ill. For thou art with me and thy rod, and staff me comfort still. I mean, think about it. You see how that flows, right? It has rhyme and it has meter, and they did this basically with the entire Psalter. Now, they altered the words of the Psalms, you know, slightly, but most of you who are familiar with Psalm 23 will still recognize the, 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 the scriptures of Psalm 23 that just seem to ooze right out of that, and it's singable. Suddenly, what you had was illiterate Christians who literally became living Bibles as they went around singing the Psalms to each other, storing up God's word in their heart. How? Not by going to school or by seminary, but by simply going to worship services on Sundays. They memorized and learned the Psalms. Now, we don't do this much in Baptist circles, and I think to our shame, actually. I think there's something we should learn from this. And our Reformed Presbyterian brothers and all those, they know the Psalms way better than us. But what's interesting about this is that this stuff is starting to make a revival, I think, right now. And I think it's a good thing. Now, this kind of stuff, you know, the psalm singing, it worked actually for a while in the Christian church, but there were others who became uncomfortable with that, saying, well, it says sing psalms, but what about the hymns and spiritual songs as well? And when the 17th and the 18th century came about, we saw the rise of a prolific hymn writer by the name of Isaac Watts, many of whom his songs we still actually sing today. Watts was so frustrated at the staleness of the way Christian worship had you know, degenerated into with purely, I guess, some uh, uh, lip worship and psalm singing, that he felt that the Christian church needed to write some more personal songs that were actually centered on the worship of Christ. You have to remember that the psalms, in one sense, were the hymn book of Israel and don't mention Jesus until later when you look at the psalms through the lens of Jesus Christ. You can see him there, but his name is not written there. Isaac Watts wanted to sing about Christ. And one of his famous songs, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, when that song was released, it was not met with applause. It was actually met with intense controversy and immediate dislike. People called it a hymn of human composure because his song dared to use the words I and my in a Christian song. So you have to understand in those days, people sang only in their hymns objective truth about God. The very idea about inserting your human emotions into these songs was considered far too personal and perhaps even blasphemous to God. And so his song was shot down at that time. You know, churches actually split over singing contemporary worship over the traditional psalm singing. 
So the splits that we have today are not new. There's nothing new under the sun. Watts' songs versus the traditional psalms. In 1789, there was actually an American pastor named Adam Rankin who rode 600 miles on horseback from his home in Kentucky to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia just to urge them not to fall into what he called the great and pernicious error of adapting the use of Isaac Watts's hymns in public worship in preference to the Psalms of David. You, know, you think about it, it's on horseback. That's like two to three weeks of riding. I don't know how many of you would travel two to three weeks in your air-conditioned car to stop a worship service. You know, it's very serious. You know, we sing songs like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, you know, or Things with I in it, all the time. And we don't even bat an eye at these things. We're like, I'm sure the church sang this all the time. Absolutely not. It didn't. Previous generations of Christians were horrified at this kind of singing. Shallow lyrics, they thought, dishonoring to the Lord. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true, but it is worth us thinking about. Is the worship of God sometimes more about how we feel, or is it more about who God is and what He is, no matter what we think? Something to think about. But still, just having good hymn writers is not a good enough reason to be able to get hymns to be spread. Part of the reason that these songs spread so well all throughout the continent and also in England and then to the New World was not only because they were biblically faithful and the hearts of God's people resonated with them, but they spread very well because they were structured and set to a common meter. Now, unlike worship songs today that are written generally in whatever style and they don't rhyme or, you know, and they have great music, uh, you know, these songs in one sense could be easily learned or actually sung to many different tunes. So to give you an example of this, I actually wrote a 10-verse hymn in the 17th and 18th century style this week. Uh, most of the songs that they wrote actually had 10 verses, but we generally only sing three or four you know, of them in modern services. But in this style of the golden era of English Christian music, uh, you can see just how much care goes into crafting a song for God's people. So I wrote it in this style. Okay? I'll put it up here, uh, number one, Paul, verse one. To God I pray to bless my soul with gifts that will suffice, to meet my needs in heaven's time and help me follow Christ. For eyes I pray to see and feel what prophets long to taste, how God's own son gave up his life for sinners ran his race. So do you notice the rhythm of this song? I'll count it out for you as we go through another verse. Okay, you listen for this. Eight syllables, six syllables, eight syllables, and six syllables. Number three. For faith I pray to overcome the world and false delight, the devil's lies and compromise to shine with gospel light. 8686, iambic heptameter, or better known as common meter. Many of the hymns of their era were written this way. And the incredible advantage of doing this is that you can pick just about any tune to a well-known hymn and it will work which made composition of music for God's people to sing very easy. For example, let me show you how this works with number four here. To the tune, a triumphant tune, I say, of all hail the power. So you can say, for hope I pray that does not shame, I'm never left alone. For in my heart the Spirit's love has marked me as His own. 
Though in my heart the Spirit's love has marked me as His own. And you can sing that. Very easy. Or if you want to go Christmassy, number five. For love I pray that does not boast, nor press for its own way, but bears, believes, and hopes all things till the perfect comes to stay. Or you can do a more joyful one, like Watts, number six. For joy I pray to suffer well, a slave of Christ my King, Though shackles chain my arms of flesh, yet still thy praise I sing, yet still his praise I sing, yet still, yet still his praise I sing. See how it works? You can just keep doing this. It just, just keeps going. If you're like Russians here and you like minor keys or like modern things, you can sing like, For peace I pray to quell my fears concerning earthly cares, to guard my anxious heart and mind in every day's affairs. Or if you're non-Christian here and you like bar tunes, for grace I pray to understand those Satan's thorns I bear, his power in my feebleness reveals my master's care. Or rappers, for example, which I like. <laughs> for power I pray to preach the word that pierces hearts of stone and reap the fields of human souls and shepherd lost ones' homes, yo. Well, verse, verse 10, my favorite classic. O Father God who called me first and drew my heart to Thee, preserve my soul till home I come to live eternally. So you guys can sing that. Didn't have to teach you anything. You understand why in the 17th and the 18th century, hymns and Christian songs spread like wildfire all over the place. You didn't even need to know how it was sung. All you needed were the words. And you said, I hear my master's voice in those words. I'm going to sing that to any tune I can find that will make much of Jesus. You know, I put the hymn in two columns here. Um, but, you know, I'll just go through it. You know, some of you might have noticed as you're thinking about how this hymn works, and I wrote it in that style. Verse 4, I took from Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 5, you know, and then uh, one of the sections there I took from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great section on Christian love. And then I wrote it, as you noticed, in terms of faith, hope, and love, you know, three, four, five verses. And then the next section is the fruits of the Spirit, right, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. And it goes, love, joy, and peace. That was verses 5, 6, and 7. So every line is a prayer. It begins with God, and it ends in the style that Christians wrote of thinking about heaven and our home going to eternity. See, the people of the past, many of them were so saturated with the Bible that it just flowed out of them in terms of what they sang. You know, I wrote these lyrics in one afternoon this last week. And I wrote it as I was just praying, and I was writing out my prayers to God. And I was just saying, I think I need to turn one of these into a song. And one thing led to another, and soon I had 10 verses there. And you know, I don't know, maybe someone sitting here who is far more musical than I will take something like that, and you will uh, add a chorus to it, add a great guitar riff, 
and then you will publish it, you know what I mean, and turn it into a Christian song to be sung. I don't know. But my point is this. The church must never stop reading its culture and writing music, modern hymns that express the hearts and feelings that are governed by scripture of the redeemed people of God. We can't just live in the past singing things that were written for a different age. We should sing those things as a tribute to our past and also an acknowledgement of the timeless truths contained in amazing songs like Amazing Grace. But we need to write songs to combat the spirit of our age taking the popular tunes of this world and our musical style so that we can arm God's people with biblical thinking in their hearts so that as they sing these great truths over and over and over again in their hearts, the promises of God will settle over their souls and would fill their hearts, getting rid of their intoxication and allowing them to sing to God with joy. This is how we will wage war in the world. I love how one hymn writer actually stressed the importance of writing good Christian songs today. He wrote, singing great hymns, even modern hymns, modern hymnody, is as critical for today as Christians as it was for the fourth century church. For God still uses the hymn as a powerful tune to train the mind to focus on theological truth and to invoke the grace of the Spirit of God. So I put this in your outline, number four. Biblically rich songs train the hearts and minds of God's people to love Christ. You know, church, let me just ask you as we wrap this up, you know, do, you, do you believe that God has commanded us to be a singing people? Do you believe that as a Christian who has been saved by Jesus, you have every reason in the world to sing? Or has your heart grown so cold to the things of God because you're just intoxicated either by your business or by a boyfriend or some sport? And you find yourself lifeless in Christian worship on Sunday because you're actually a chronic drinker of the spiritual alcohol of this world. Something you drink every day of the week. And my question for you is, are you willing to put down the bottle of your hobbies or your things that you enjoy so much, your idols, and to take up instead the living word of God? and to let that fill your soul every single day so that when you come on a Sunday to sing with God's people, what, is, what comes out of your mouth is not just lip worship, but the worship that comes from a soul that is alive in God. You know, maybe some of you here today actually don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you are miserable because you've been drinking different cocktails that the world has handed you and said, Take this and you'll be happy. Drink this and you'll make you happy. And nothing has worked. You feel wretched hangovers every day, every time you leave that bottle behind. And what I want to say to you is, you will never find anything in the, in the world that you can drink that will ultimately satisfy your soul. The only thing in this world that you can drink up and never get drunk is Jesus Christ and the living word of God. And so I would urge you, if you are here, leave behind your sins. Go to God for forgiveness. Stop drinking from broken cisterns or mud holes that can hold no water and turn to the fountain of living water himself and drink deeply. And our Lord Jesus Christ says that anyone who comes to him and drinks will never be cast away. You know, church, 
God has done something magnificent for us in sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And so we as people have every reason to sing. Let's put away the bottle and pick up our Bibles instead and fill our hearts with truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be able to sing your praises. There is no God who is like you, God. Enthroned on the cherubim, enthroned on the praises of your people, who alone is holy and dwells in unapproachable light, God, who has reached through the darkness, God, and torn that veil so that we who once were far off can now be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we drink now the true and living water that comes through Christ and His Word. So I pray, Lord, as we go about our lives through this week, You would help us turn from the bottles that this world offers us and to find their alcohol distasteful to our lips and instead open our Bibles and drink from You. God, help us to be a worshiping people, a people who worship in spirit and in truth and make much of our Savior so that the world might see him for who he is and be saved. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.